Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy. And we are here on, uh, I don't know, the start of fall. Is that today? It was yesterday, I think. Anyway, the fall started and we're here to talk about the transfer portal mostly today. We're, uh, we'll maybe touch on a little bit of fall ball. I know Joe got out and saw some fall ball last weekend. So uh, we've got a lot to get to, but, but mostly we're, we're going to talk about the top 100 transfer impact transfers. We updated the list from the summer when it was just 50, we expanded it to hundred. You can check that out over at baseballamerica.com. So we're going to get into that today. And again, maybe a little fall ball as well as that gets started around the country, but uh, a lot to get to today here on the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, I know I said we were here to talk about the, the impact transfers, but I actually want to start it with the, with the fall ball, I think. Uh, you, uh, you were at NC State. You were at Charlotte. Uh, there were scrimmages around the country. There were a couple of uh, you know, bigger fall games. Creighton played Nebraska in front of a crowd of a, a couple thousand over the weekend, and uh, so all of that's that's starting to to kick up, and uh, you were you were able to get out to to a few practices so far. Yeah, it was nice uh, getting back into the fall ball swing. It's a fun time of year because you can kind of project whatever you whatever you want to see in a team. It's a Rorschach test of you're able to project onto a team in the fall based on what you see. You can almost draw any conclusion you want in a lot of cases, and so it's just kind of fun um, for someone like me who loves the sport like that. But um, I was out there melting at Charlotte, hot day in Charlotte, not a lot of air movement. That one was, that one was tough one. Joe got a little sunburned. Not bad. I, I, I put sunblock on, but you know, there's, it's, it's almost impossible. I think we've talked about this before, actually. It's almost impossible to reapply as often as you really need to reapply when you're on outside in one of those really intense Sundays. So that was, um, that was uh, probably the worst part of that, but otherwise it was a, a good day out there at Charlotte. My first time um, on campus at Charlotte, and I was kind of impressed, not, not just the facility, all that was also true. I think it's a pretty nice facility they've had for a while too that's not necessarily a a new new facility for charlotte so that kind of predates them being what they are becoming as a as a program a nice facility it was you know the uh, the music was anyway uh the uh good good uh, pre-game music selection Uh, you had the national anthem the Jimi hendrix guitar national anthem um which by the way little story time 
So when I was in college at, at Sam Houston, we, uh, at basketball games, they would have students. We had a pretty good music school, Sam Houston. So it was mostly students doing the national anthem. So you'd have, you know, uh, some sort of like quartet come and sing and you have a soloist. And then, you know, sometimes you'd have like a, you know, a small band, you know, just a few pieces. Sometimes the pep band would just do it. Um, but one time we had a guy who played basically the Jimi Hendrix version of the national anthem on guitar. And for those who don't know, like Jimi Hendrix famously did a version of the national anthem on electric guitar that was kind of new and edgy and groundbreaking for the time uh, because it, it was thought that, you know, the national anthem should be um, revered in that way. And, and I get that, but, you know, he was just putting a different spin on it and thoughts have evolved about that. But anyway, I was in college and this, this kid, I mean, he was a student, you know, in school there, like did that version on the guitar. And there's this older man who I had seen at some games. He was just kind of a townie, I think that you know, went to games and maybe he went to school there, maybe he didn't, but, um, and he comes down, he's probably in like row 10 or 12 and he walks down to like, you know, row one or two. And this is a mid-major basketball gym. So you can, I mean, if you wanted to, you could walk on the floor from your seats. Um, nothing but social norms keeping you off the floor at those types of games. And he just boos this kid when it's over. Like, I guess because he thought it was disrespectful, <laughs> like the, the, the way that national, national Anthem was being played on, on electric guitar. Like he was probably someone who criticized Jimi Hendrix for it. But he just like, you know, waddles down to row one and is like, boo, get out of here. Like he's at this kid. And like, I think about that a lot actually, <laughs> because one, like, that's rude. Like, no matter what you think about that, like, that's not the time or the place. Like, that's just, that's just rude. Like we can have a discussion about whether or not like the national anthem should be played that way. I think it's fine, but maybe somebody disagrees. I'd be willing to hear that argument, but like, don't boo this, whatever he was, 20 year old kid doing his best. Secondarily, that is a great story for that kid to tell. It did not feel good in that moment. I guarantee you, but I also guarantee you that kid who is now, you know, like me and is, you know, early to mid thirties is still telling that story today. And I'm jealous that he gets to tell that story because that has got to be a pretty funny one to tell. But I just was like, I was like almost shocked at what I was seeing. You just don't expect, nobody boos the national anthem, you know? And uh, this poor kid got booed. So anyway, they played that version at Charlotte. Um, also played a little Top Gun, the theme music from Top Gun, not Danger Zone, by the way, the instrumental theme song to Top Gun. They played during like the motorcycle montage at the beginning of the movie which gets still, I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not ashamed to admit gives me goosebumps whenever I hear it. So that was uh, kind of cool, but it was a good experience with Charlotte. Long story short on Charlotte, um, really liked their lineup, which is impressive when you consider what they've lost. You know, Dom Palali, uh, Gino Groover, uh, both headed to NC State. They lost their starting catcher to the draft, a couple of other pieces here and there. And it's, it's still a really good position player group. Uh, I like it on paper. Plenty of questions on the mound. Saw a lot of new faces on the mound. That's going to be a question mark for Charlotte as they go into next season. Kind of the. I mean, you got to have faith, though, just Robert Woodard being the head coach there, you know, being able to identify and develop pitching talent. I feel a lot better about one of his teams if you're telling me that the, uh, the pitching staff is the one that, that you, you have some questions about that more so than the lineup. Yeah, and they've clearly gone all in on pitching development. You know, we, when we had him on the podcast last year, we talked about their entire pitching staff going to P3 performance in St. Louis. Their pitching coach was hired from P3. So they've clearly gone all in on, on maximizing performance there. And, and, you know, so I think that the thing is, like, 
I think they've got a chance for their pitching staff to actually be better than last year's because they had some nice pieces last year, but I think kind of in the process of trying to get that pitching staff where that coaching staff wants it, they actually weren't all that great on the mound last year. They had some nice arms. Uh, they had some guys have good performances, Bryce McGowan, Christian Lothus, but there were a lot of guys who just didn't quite perform like maybe they were expected to. And, and now that pitching staff has turned over quite a bit again. So we'll see what, what comes of it in 2022. Um, top line thing from, from this will be in my fall uh, five questions piece that coming out on Charlotte by the time you listen to this. Uh, Christian Lothus, their closer last year, fastball at 97. They are uh, moving him into a starter role. So they're going to try to make him their Friday starter. So that's a, a big piece of the puzzle for them. Uh, NC State's an interesting position. I, you know, I've not done really the dig. I saw them in the scrimmage. It was a five-inning scrimmage. It was, you know, it was, it was fine. Uh, saw what I needed to see there in a lot of ways. But I haven't really um, done a lot of digging on them just yet for my fall five questions. It'll be out next week. But the long story short on them is that, you know, they don't bring a ton back in the lineup, but it's NC State, so you have a high level of confidence that they're still going to hit and they're still going to be a good defensive lineup. I mean, they were elite defensively last year, and so there are some questions about if they'll be that good, but I think the pieces are there for that to be the case. They've got a real logjam up the middle where they've got, you know, JT Jarrett is a second baseman by trade. Uh, they've got Peyton Green, the phenom freshman shortstop. They've got Gino Groover, who has played first base for Charlotte, but is probably more of a second baseman. They've got Josh Hood, a shortstop transfer from Penn. So they've got kind of a logjam there. Someone probably in that group plays third base. Um, and then maybe and Tommy some... White, though, also a really indeed. highly touted freshman, is going to figure out one of the corners. Yeah, and indeed. Uh, Tommy White, impressive BP on Tommy White. Also impressive. He's got the um, – the jeez, uh, uh, I can't believe I'm blinking on this name of all things. Uh, Pete Alonzo, thank you. Uh, that was me thinking my memory there, not Teddy. <laughs> Teddy did not just silently I say it to me. It. Um, but he, he has like the Pete Alonzo glasses, you know, going on, uh, the shades. And so impressive BP for Tommy White. There's a lot of, he's kind of a stockier infielder if you're not familiar with him, but a lot of power in that swing. So you're right. I mean, he's a guy who's going to try to break into it too. Um, so long story short, good lineup there, but they're actually in decent shape on the mound. You know, the depth is a question and it was a question last year, but you're starting from the point of having Sam Heifel in the rotation. You like that. You have Chris Villeman back, uh, whether they put him back in the rotation or keep him in the bullpen remains to be seen, but you like that as a piece guy pitched for team USA with Heifel this summer. Um, Matt Willidson is back. He was their Sunday guy. Um, you know, their Sunday guy last year and was really good in, in spots. So there's some, I think they've got some cornerstones there on the mound. They can really work around. Uh, the question is going to be, what does the rest of it look like? But again, I mean, that's kind of the story every year with NC state. And I think last year was unique. And I think last year there were even more questions about it. And then last year, I think their pitching staff on the high end was better, uh, not only than we expected it, but it, it was better than in a lot of previous years when there was a little more certainty going into the season. So uh, spoiler alert, NC state going to be pretty good again, but I think that's, I think that's notable, you know, ha having gone to Omaha last year, I think the ceiling for the 2022 team is pretty high, especially with the young talent they brought in. Um, they have to do it, but like, there, I think there is an opportunity for NC state now to be a team that kind of finds a new gear. They're, they're typically a team that is, you know, finishes between 17 and 22 in the rankings every year, gets to a regional, maybe gets to a super regional. But I think there's a chance they can reach something a little bit higher than that because the way they've been recruiting the last couple of years. And then obviously having something like getting to Omaha last year and making such an impact. I think those kind of things can build on itself. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, they're, they're a team that we pretty comfortably expect to be in the hosting mix year in and year out. 
Um, but I, I do think that, you know, there's reason to believe that there's more to be had and uh, the more they build off of, you know, these kinds of runs, uh, the, you know, that they'll, they'll have the opportunity to, to raise that ceiling, like you said. And um, this recruiting class has a chance to be the best since the one when they brought in Rodon and, and Brett Austin and Trey Turner. And of course, those guys went to Omaha. So if this group uh, is able to, you know, and, and they were starting from a lower spot there, right? Because they hadn't been to Omaha at that point in like 40, 50 years. And now they've been to Omaha twice in a decade and, and are coming off of an immediate, immediately coming off of an Omaha trip. Um, so, so I do think there's a lot to work with here. And if Peyton Green and Tommy White and some of the other newcomers hit the ground running, they're in a good spot. And, you know, even if they don't, you know, they, they don't need those, those freshmen in particular to be the, the stars on this team. They, they don't need that from them yet. If they get that from them, I mean, this team should be in a really good spot, but they, they should be able to just kind of let those guys come along and, and develop and play roles this year, but not be the, uh, the, the top line guys on the scouting report. So if they can do that, they, they should be pretty solid. I'll be interested to see what the pitching shakes out as, but um, it, it, they should hit well. They've got enough pitching. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see where they stack up in the ACC, but I, I do think that they should be uh, one of the better teams within that conference. Yeah, no doubt. I, you know, and I think with the pitching too, I think it's important to note that they, they really kind of got snake bitten last year. And yes, they were thin ultimately, but part of it was they got a little bit snake bitten with injuries. So a little bit of better health luck, I think could maybe play a role there. Um, because last year it, it was not just that there were some guys that, that didn't have this quite the type of seasons they were hoping to have. Oh, there were those guys. It was also just that they were down a handful of guys and that obviously affects your, affects your depth when it's all said and done. So a healthier year from the NC state pitching staff would, I think go a long way towards remedying some of those things. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You mentioned uh, within both of those Charlotte and NC state capsules, the, uh, that they had some transfers, some significant transfers. So let's uh, let's, take a, a flip here over into our, our broader top 100 transfer talk uh, for the day. Um, like I said, we, uh, we expanded our list, mostly Joe expanded the list. I, uh, I supplemented, I suppose. <laughs> um, we, had, we had a list of top 50 impact transfers that we put out over the, the summer in the middle of July or thereabouts. And now we have doubled that to, uh, to the, the 100 most impactful transfers. These are four to four transfers, not junior college transfers, just guys moving from four-year schools to four-year schools through the portal. Um, and uh, you can check that over out over at baseballamerica.com. And if you haven't done that yet, you can do it right now uh, while we take a second uh, for, uh, for an ad break. All right, everyone. Uh, hopefully you have... Uh, been able to to check out that top 100 list by now and uh so if you did uh you know that number one on the list was jacob berry the corner infielder from going from arizona to lsu he played for the national team over the summer he's being projected as a first round pick in this year's draft uh he was kind of a slam dunk number one 
Uh, Joe, is there any more intro you want to give to uh, to this list since, again, this was primarily your project? Yeah, I think I thought about this today. Like, I'm curious if I, if I pose this to you, how you'll feel. If Jacob Berry had been the only player LSU got via transfer, so I guess for background for the listeners, I'm also putting together a list of top 25 transfer classes that should be out next week. Um, LSU, as you can imagine, uh, up near the top of that ranking. But let's say Jacob Berry was the only player they brought in via transfer. Would that constitute a top 25 transfer class? Because Jacob Berry is like an order of magnitude better in terms of when you talk about he's a proven entity, he's going to a place that, you know, um, you know, he's going to flourish. He's a high profile program. Like he checks all of the boxes of what you're looking for. And so, like I said, an order of magnitude better than anybody else, I think on this top 100 list. So would he on his own make a top 25 transfer class? So this kind of reminds me of the, the, the talks that we get into sometimes in baseball America about draft classes. Like if you get just one all-star out of your class and nothing else, like 20 rounds, 40 rounds, whatever, whatever the draft was, no other big leaguers, but you got an all-star, like what grade, is that an A? Is that a B? Like where, where, where are you putting a grade on that draft class? And I think I generally would say that, yes, Jacob Berry on his own would be a top 25 class. Now, the, the only struggle I have with that is that when you say class, I think of grouping of talent, not a gr- group of players, not just one player. Um, but you know, I, I just because it would just be the one guy that that would be the only hesitation. Um, but you know, if you just if you were to make it a little less, like if you were to try and make it a little more scientific, try and put like numbers on this, like Jacob Berry is, you know, because he's number one on this list, he's therefore with a hundred points, and number one hundred on this list is worth one point. Like if you were to try and do it like that the hundred points that LSU would get from Jacob Berry would be, I guarantee enough to put them in, in a top 25 class. Um, you know, if you, if you were to try it again, quantify it a little more. So I, I, I guess my answer ultimately is going to land on yes. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes me, so I would say yes as well. Um, it also makes me feel good because I think there, there are going to be several uh, two player transfer classes in the top 25 of the, of the transfer class list, just from the standpoint of, you know, 25 is a lot. And so when you get right down to it, there just aren't that many schools that took more than let's say three players. Right. So like, you know, if we have two players in the top 30 of our top 100 transfers list, like that's going to be one of the best classes, you know, it'd be one thing if, if each school was averaging five or six guys, then we could probably, anyway, long story short, um, that was an interesting debate there, but I think my overall feelings on what we saw in the transfer portal this offseason is, yes, it was busier than ever, but I think that affected the depth of what was available in the transfer portal more so than what was available on the high end. I think there was a lot of hand-wringing about, oh, it's going to be open season on every good player on every roster in America. And I think what happened with Jacob Berry and with Arizona in general, where, you know, Jay Johnson goes to be the head coach at LSU. Jacob Berry goes in the portal almost immediately, commits to LSU. 
I think exacerbated that worry a little bit. But I think what we ended up seeing was that there were just very few players, well, none of Jacob Berry's quality, but there were very few players of, even within shouting distance of that quality. What I will say is there were a lot more because I, I looked at the portal pretty hard before last season and did something similar in terms of, of making a list of impact guys and, and all that jazz. But there were a lot more guys who I think are going to be quality contributors at relevant programs. This list was hundred players. There were probably ultimately at least 200, maybe 250 that you could have made compelling arguments should have been included. Obviously we couldn't do that. And obviously some of those arguments wouldn't end up being strong enough, but you might've been able to talk me into, you know, like I said, 200, 250 players, um, you know, being on this list. I mean, guys that I just kind of quickly threw together a handful of names of guys who didn't make this list that are intriguing. I mean, we're talking about Trey LaFleur from Ole Miss going to, you know, uh, Louisiana. You've got Trey Schaefer, lefty from Southeastern Louisiana, whose fastballs up to 97 going to LSU. Um, Aaron Funk, you know, going to Ohio State, a guy who's been, you know, really, really productive at Arkansas Little Rock. Adam Fogle, uh, a big time producer at Hawaii going to Kentucky. Like those are all quality players that last year I would have put on an impact transfers list that this year were maybe in consideration, but you know, those four guys weren't, they weren't anybody who was on the list and got cut. Those were guys who were just always off the list and stayed there. So the depth was really good. Um, On the high end, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't much different than in past years. You know, even in in past years, when you would have to sit out a year, you'd get one or two really big names. Um, You know, we had in this case, one super Nova of a name and then a lot of, really good players, but I don't think it was nearly the um, shopping spree situation that many feared once we knew that you were going to be able to transfer from four-year school to four-year school. Yeah, the, um, there there definitely were some high profile players because there were coaching changes at the Arizona schools more than anything else. Like I think that's where the highest profile players came from, but I would say that at least this year, it feels like the concerns about mid-majors just losing, automatically losing their best players did not come to pass. That doesn't mean that in future years where, and it is worth remembering that this legislation, while it was very much telegraphed, did not get passed until after the baseball season had started. And so, you know, we don't know with with more planning, with more time to think, will players in the future evaluate things differently? But, you know, the the fact that you have to be in the portal um, I, early, I think maybe, maybe helps it. But, you know, there were still players on the Cape that had good Capes that didn't get in the portal and, and didn't, you know, move uh, from mid-major schools. So I, I, I think that we'll see where that goes, but that is a positive thing right now, because I do understand the concerns that players from lower levels would, uh, you know, you know, I understand the concerns from coaches. I don't think that that's a reason to, you know, continue making it so that baseball players would have to sit out a year to, uh, to transfer. Uh, but it just like, this is a partial scholarship sport. Like I just don't feel good especially in a partial scholarship sport about putting those kinds of limitations on on players. Um, But even in football and basketball, it's still not, it's hard to make a a really compelling case for why uh, 
they shouldn't have the ability to transfer. But that being said, that doesn't mean that if every good player from the bottom 10 conferences in the sport decided like, yep, all right, I, I had one good year. It's time to move up schools. Like that wouldn't be a good thing. So I, it, it was kind of heartening to see that there wasn't a ton of that going on. Um, it definitely happened, but th- there just wasn't a ton of that. And uh, I think that was kind of my main portal takeaway uh, overall. Yeah, I think it's a good one. And for someone like me, I think that was important because while I, I recognized that that was a possibility with the portal, that mid-major schools, anytime you had a, a bumper crop of really talented players that has success, you, you were just going to be at risk of losing those guys. And I suppose that will always be a risk, but it, it didn't. it really didn't take off in year one, like I think many feared to your point. I also think you add this all up and I think there's an argument to be made that what the portal looks like next year is maybe a more real, if you will, look at what the portal might look like moving forward. Just because to your point, we didn't get the official official word on this until the season already started. Things were well underway. I also think tugging in the other direction of this, and we've talked about this before, is just that these teams are still dealing with roster crunch situations. And you compare it to where we were at this time last year, and there were some extreme examples of, well, I don't want to say extreme. There were some obvious examples of programs who you knew, hey, if you're a senior, you're just going to be out of luck, right? Ivy League schools, schools like Wofford, for example, that don't have graduate programs, things like that. You knew those school service academies, those you knew what was going to happen at those schools. But if you were just your garden variety public school, no matter how good you were at baseball, for the most part, you brought those seniors back, if for no other reason than just in the interest of fairness, right? Um, you know, fairly callous. Some schools may have done it, but, you know, fairly callous just to kind of leave those guys out to dry. Maybe, you know, they had the opportunity to go somewhere else as a grad transfer, but, but you know what I mean. A little bit different this year, though. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why we saw the depth we did of quality talent out there is – you know, if you were a guy who was a junior in 2020, and so this was your fourth year junior year in 2021, maybe you got your degree, you know, you've now played what would have been your senior season at your original school, a little bit easier for those schools, I think, to say, hey, here's the deal. You've got your degree. Um, you know, we're trying to get the roster down, you know, all this kind of, if, if there's an opportunity out there, let's find it for you. Um, because, you know, that that's just kind of ha- what the game that they're having to play right now, I think more so than, than a year ago. So I think you've got some, the, the wa- waters are a little bit muddied because I think you've got some factors pulling in different directions on what the portal looks like. And so I think all that or much of that washes out in the next couple of years. So I think the portal at this time next year, and then especially the year after, I think we're going to have a lot clearer look at what this is actually going to look like. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll be interested to see where it goes. I am hopeful that it's not going to become the the worst fears of people and not so much the the sheer numbers. I don't care too much about that. And the sheer number that you see get thrown around isn't necessarily a perfect number anyway. Uh, the portal counts things in kind of a weird way. So anyone that's you see on Twitter talking about a precise number of players that are in the portal and moved this summer, it, I mean, they unless they went through with a really fine tooth comb, they don't have the exact number. Um, but players move normal college students transfer 
this is this is just how things work. Every other sport, uh, with the exception of baseball, basketball, hockey, and base uh, baseball, football, basketball, and hockey, figured this thing out years ago. I, baseball will figure it out too. It'll, it'll be all right in the long run. Um, there might be some bumps along the way, but it'll it'll be all right. All right. So with uh, with that said, Joe, um, we uh, let, let's dive into this a little more granularly, I guess. The the 50 that we put out in July looks a lot like the top 50 that exists today. And basically what it seems like happened there is the top of the class, the top of the portal class, uh, went out and, and made their commitments early. And then everyone else kind of followed through the rest of the summer. And so while a lot of transfer commitments were made in the second half of July and into August, uh, there were not a ton of impactful ones or super impactful ones uh, in terms of like top 10, top 20 players. There are some, and I want to want to touch on those, but it, it was kind of interesting to see that play out. Like, all right, the, the top end of this class has to move before the rest of this class moves. It, it, it felt like that was happening. And also the draft played into it as well. Certainly, I'm sure programs were waiting to see how that played out and, and players were holding off to see who, uh, who might be most interested in them af- in, until after the draft happened. But uh, the, the top of the group looks, looks remarkably similar uh, as it did in, in July. Yeah, I think your assessment over there is right. I mean, if, if, you know, if you're Texas A&M and you know you want Micah Dallas under any circumstances, um, you know, so you, you take him on, whereas some of the guys from, especially in the 75 to 100 range are probably guys that the schools they ended up at could, I don't want to say take, or, take them or leave them because that probably, A, undersells it and B, <laughs> comes off as a little disrespectful. But those are probably guys who, depending on the roster shape, could have ended up in a few different. Places. If the draft had gone something differently, or you know, a junior college commit goes differently, like those players may well have been at another school. Right, hundred percent. So there were a couple of notable changes within the upper echelon of this list. One of them, obviously, is a guy we've talked about a couple times, and in, in Adam Meyer, Meyer or Mayer. Do we know? I've not heard that name I'm said. Not yet. A, not positive. Yeah, that's a, that's one we will have to uh, we will have to. Todd Miles, if you're listening, send us an email. Um, but you know, it's, I, I've been going with Mayer, but you know, he's kind of the biggest name here, number two on the list. And I think that's right. I mean, you, you were really the one on this one that gassed him up. I had a little, him a little bit lower, still high, but a little bit lower. Um, I think you can make an argument on either side of it. I mean, the, the argument for lower is, well, he hasn't really pitched in the spring season since early in 2020. He was pitching. I mean, he basically AI. hasn't pitched a college season at all. So if you, if you missed our, our Cape talk about him, he's, uh, he he's a Canadian. Uh, he played for the junior national team. There was at the World Cup, the U18 World Cup. Uh, then goes to the University of British Columbia, which is an NAIA school in British Columbia. And he he's there as a freshman in 2020. Their season had started. He pitched some, and then COVID hit, and so that ended 2020. UBC did not play in 2021 because of Canadian, you know, restrictions and, and all the rest of that. 
Uh, so he, he basically hadn't, hadn't done much of anything until this summer when he went to the Cape Cod League and pitched very well uh, for the YD Red Sox. And, you know, now is in, you know, being talked about as a, as a top 100 draft pick, top, top two rounder likely. And so my feeling on, on running him up the list was there just aren't that many guys that we're talking about that way here. Um, if we're, if we're going to, if that assessment is right, that he can be a, a top 50 ish pick, then he's got to be one of the couple most impactful transfers. And I, the, the flip side is that he just hasn't pitched a lot of college baseball games. He pitched more for, for YD this summer than he's, he pitched for UBC, but now he slots in at Oregon and presumably will go right into the rotation, possibly right onto Friday nights. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what he has in the pac 12, but what he showed this summer was super exciting in, in terms of what the upside can be. Yeah. Now you're, you're in a place where at least speaking just for myself, like I would believe just about anything about how that turns out. He could be Oregon's ace and one of the best pitchers in the pac 12. He could really struggle um, because, Hey, it's a big jump. He's making, he could be show good stuff and just kind of be okay. Stat wise, like all those things feel, feel very in play. So um, that one's going to be an exciting one to watch as, as the season. I, mean, I, I do think out. it's also important to remember he does have pedigree. Like he, he was a known commodity coming out of high school. The fact that he was off of all of our radars because he was at UBC and NAIA school. And then that team didn't play notwithstanding. He did come to college with some degree of, of, of pedigree coming out of high school. Yeah. Good, that's a good point. Um, but that'll, that'll just be a fascinating one to, to watch Oregon looking to kind of keep that thing rolling. They Oregon kind of low key loses a decent amount from last year's team. And um, so they're kind of in a, in a little bit of a, a reload position. And I think him being what we think he could be would, would be a big part of that. Uh, next, I, I wanted to highlight a player that is probably the exact opposite player of Adam Meyer in terms of, in terms of production versus, you know, him being on one end of the spectrum in terms of experience and production than the other. And that's Chris Lanzilli going to Arkansas. You know, he's a guy that has been nothing but productive in his time at Wake Forest is his career average right around 300. He's got 46 doubles in his career, 42 home runs in his career. And I think one thing that's happened with Lanzilli is that he's someone who's pretty polarizing in terms of he's been an extremely productive player. And even if you apply the Wake Forest filter of that's an offensive ballpark, their guys always put up numbers you know, he's somebody who's been above and beyond that in terms of productive. It's not really a fluke situation there, but the scouting community is pretty um, lukewarm. I mean, on there's him. a reason why he's still in college, right? The scouting community is pretty lukewarm on him. Um, you know, that's was, being kind. That's, yeah, I, I've heard, yeah, I've heard some things that are frankly mean about Chris Lanzilli sitting in scouting sections. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but the dude has just been really productive, and I think the negativity about it's the scouting community, which I think has seeped over into a little bit to the media community, I think has now far outpaced what he actually is as a player. He's a very good college hitter, and he's going to go into a place at Arkansas where I think he's going to have an opportunity to continue to produce at a high level. That's a team that knows how to teach offense. 
always have guys that swing the bats. I think it's going to be a, a good fit for him. The jump from the ACC to the SEC is a, is a jump, but it's not a substantial one. It's going to the best conference from, depending on how you look at it, the second or third best conference. So I think he's a guy who I think can put up really big numbers and be a big part of what Arkansas is now doing, which is trying to just be a team that is a national title contender year after year. But he's a guy I wanted to highlight just because I think he's easy to overlook now because I think we thought he'd be in pro baseball right now, but the reality is he's not, but he's still been an incredibly productive player. Yeah. That's uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how he does. Uh, Arkansas has played very well in the transfer portal in previous years uh, in terms of grad transfers. And so if they're going to go take a grad transfer hitter, uh, I'm generally going to believe them. And in this case, I don't really have to uh, because he has the track record that he does at Wake Forest. And, you know, let's face it, Bomb Stadium's pretty offensive too. So he'll, uh, I- I'm sure he'll fit right into to that lineup. So I was going to talk a little bit about, we talked in the NC State section about Gino Groover and, and Dom Palali. Part of the connection there is that Bo Robinson, assistant coach at Charlotte, Charlotte legend, I believe he's got his number retired by the Charlotte program, um, is now at NC State as an assistant. I assume that's part of the, I can't say for certain, but I assume that's part of the rationale behind those guys, just beyond wanting to play at a, at a, at a bigger program and, and maybe try to go to College World Series, win a national title, all that stuff. That, that's probably part of the deal there. Um, so I will skip past those because we've already talked about them a little bit. We'll talk about a guy who um, I know you'll probably have something to say about, but is another one that's fascinating to watch. And that's Maurice Hampton Jr. Outfielder from LSU, two-sport guy, played football at LSU, didn't really prove himself on the baseball field. A lot of that, not necessarily his fault, though. He has a long football season. He's on the national title team with LSU. That cut into not just his fall, but really seeped into, I mean, we're talking you know, he gets done with football. Now we're talking in mid January by the time he's really kind of come out of that. Um, so that kind of set him back a little bit. And wasn't he hurt too? There was, yeah, I think there was also like a little bit of an injury issue there. Um, so moral of the story is this is a guy who was at number 35 on the BA 500 coming out of high school that just never played uh, for various reasons. Um, not only does he go into the portal early last season, but he, he leaves school. Um, whether that, kept him from maybe going to another high profile program or not. I don't know, but regardless, he's going to go to Stanford, which is a really good program, good baseball program. I don't know what his status is. Uh, re football. That's an FCS football program. I don't know if his not playing. Okay. That's clarifies that. Um, so focusing just on baseball, um, he's still thought of as a prospect because the tools are so good, but we just haven't seen it. So this again is one where maybe it's just not going to happen on the baseball diamond. I think that's possible. It's also a possibility that he absolutely goes bananas at Samford feasting on SoCon pitching. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely leaning towards that. But, I mean, this is a guy, again, like Adam Meyer, that just didn't play much of the last two years without then the Cape, you know, experience. He just flat out hasn't played much baseball going on two years now. And so it's going to take a little bit of time probably. But, you know, we've also seen football players step back into baseball after extended absences and have spectacular showings. Uh, Kyler Murray comes to mind. Cody Thomas comes to mind. I don't know why they're all at Oklahoma, but, um, you know, so it can be done. And he has an incredible skill set, does, does Maurice Hampton. I mean, he had serious, serious draft consideration in the first round coming out of high school. 
And, you know, so we'll see where this goes. I, I think it could go extremely well for him. So, I mean, that, that, that has a chance to be uh, very exciting for, for Samford, which lost some players to the SEC, but also brought in some, some new, new players of, of their own through the portal. And uh, again, this is a, another program that went through a coaching change here with, um, you know, with Tony David being promoted to, to take over uh, the, the program this year. So we'll, we'll see where all of that goes, but they do bring in some, some exciting players and Maurice Hampton is really at the front of that line. Yeah, Samford, I mean, that was a program that did, you're right. I mean, they lost some guys to the SEC with, with Tyler McManus to LSU, Sonny DeShera, Brooks Carlson to Auburn. You know, it's one of those things I heard on the um, – I'm curious what, what you think. I have not asked – it's my intention to ask some coaches about this, but there's kind of an inherent um, – I'm not really sure what – there's an inherent dig when you ask a coach this, I feel like, that you have to kind of be deft about asking it, but I'm curious what their reactions would be to the idea that I don't know if you listen on the Gary Parish and Matt Norlander podcast, we referenced quite a bit, do a podcast for CBS sports on college basketball. And I think it was Gary that mentioned talking to a coach one time who said, you know, he embraced the transfer portal because he's like, look, I realize I'm going to get some talent that's going to trickle down. And the flip side of that, he's like, as, as I look at it as I can sell the idea that look, you know, you're the number you know, and this is basketball we're talking about, so the numbers are going to be a little wonky because basketball is a much smaller roster. But you're the number 100 recruit in the country, and you want to go to Kentucky. The reality is you are not going to play at Kentucky as the number 100 recruit in the country. You're the fifth best guy in your recruiting class. You're the 10th best guy on the roster. Come here to whatever mid-major this is. We are a winning program. We put guys into the NBA. And you know what? After one year, if you're good enough that John Calipari says, I got to have that kid, then you go get it, kid. Like, I'm proud of you. You did it. This is your dream. Um, again, baseball a little different with roster size, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, and I'm not saying that's what Samford is doing here. They, they had a coaching change or a lot of things going into it. But I do wonder if there are certain programs that might try to look at it that way, because I do think that's an interesting way to look at it and kind of making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I remember when GP said that, and it's an interesting approach. I don't know how baseball applicable it is just based on the already complex nature of roster management and the fact that you're working off of a much bigger roster. Uh, I, th those two things are, are the two biggest differences than the basketball. Um, but we'll see if, you know, something like that crops up over time. There, there are clear negatives to that, but there are also clear positives. So uh, definitely something to, to keep an eye on um, as, uh, as, as things progress. A lot, a lot of recruiting has, you know, the, the potential to, to kind of shift a little bit here uh, with regards to the portal, just in the way coaches go about things and, and perhaps – uh, that is one of the ways that, that we could see a shift. So what I'm going to do quickly is we transition. So I want to talk about. Some... Well, I want to bring up one more player that okay, sure. um, I, uh, I feel like we forgot uh, here. Um, and that's Jack Washburn who got in. He was not on the original list. He's been committed to Ole Miss for a while coming from Oregon state to, to Ole Miss 
uh, played for the national team. I don't know, actually, know if you saw him pitch for the national team. I I don't remember. Yep. Oh, so he was still with them when they played the Olympic. Um, and uh, that has a really, uh, you know, we, I, I think we talked the last time we talked transfer portal about what Ole Miss was doing in terms of bringing in some, some veteran guys uh, to, to help out. But Jack Washburn is, is that, but a little bit more like some, some significant impact potentially coming to, to Oxford there. Yeah, no doubt. I think we, he was, I think, the first big name that committed after we'd published the original 50. I feel like that's right, because we may have alluded to it in that podcast that we <laughs> talked about him but didn't talk about it at length. But he's a guy that, you know, with, with what Ole Miss needs, I have to assume, this is Joe assuming, I have to assume they're going to give him a chance to start, just given what they need. Now, not that they don't also need relievers, um, but I would have to assume that's something they want to look at with him, just given how talented he is. And the other guy is, is John Gaddis from Texas and Corpus Christi. And I, I kind of compare him to Lyle Lockhart at Arkansas. Like maybe he's a little better than Lockhart because he, he, he has a little bit more swing and miss stuff than Lockhart did. Um, his stuff's not great, but it's, I think there's a little more swing and miss there. So maybe his ceiling's a little higher than what Lockhart was at Arkansas, but Lockhart was, you know, a perfectly good SEC arm in, 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 you know, unless you wanted to put him in super high leverage situations, but he's a guy who gave him some good Sunday starts. And he's a guy who had some good outings here and there. So if that's what Gaddis is, I think Ole Miss will be fairly happy with it. But Washburn is, is something completely on a different level than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They've, uh, they have some options to start, but they don't have anyone really locked in. You know, you're looking at diamond and McDaniel, but um, there, there's room for, for Washburn to slide into that. If you can, if you can earn it. I was going to throw a few names at you as for flyers here. Um, these are like high profile. We talked about one with Marty's Hampton, but like kind of high profile recruits, talented guys who everyone assumed would have big roles and, and be slated for pro baseball early in their careers that just haven't taken that are now going to new places. Uh, let me know if any of these hit you. So Nander DeSatis going from Florida state to Mizzou, Brennan Malone going from South Carolina to Oregon. Matt Hogan, an outfielder going from Vanderbilt to South Carolina. Jacob Metter, TCU pitcher going to Dallas Baptist. I'm sure there are others, but as I scrolled, those were a few that kind of caught my eye. All are ranked basically like from 75 to 100 based on like a shoulder shrug of, hey, these were guys coming out of high school that just haven't put it all together yet. It is an interesting like profile that you see in the portal. Um, and there, there are a lot of them, like you said, it's, it's not just those, those four or five, um, that, that are running around, um, you know, Magdal Cotto, uh, just one year at South Carolina, now going to Kentucky. Um, you know, there, there are some, some, some players like him as well, that, that just are moving after after one year, a little higher on the list, Dominic Johnson going from Oklahoma to, to Kansas State. And uh, the guys you mentioned were all a little bit older. And that makes me a little bit more concerned about it that, yes, all of their careers have been wonky because of COVID, but also they've all had multiple opportunities to, uh, to click and it hasn't happened yet. Maybe the change of scenery uh, will work for, for any of them. I, I do like the idea maybe of Jacob Metter, um, just knowing what DBU can do with pitching, uh, and what they, what they need there. So 
that one's intriguing. And Brendan Malone, I would also say is intriguing. I don't know what Brendan Malone, Brendan Malone has always had just kind of some, where does he fit defensively? And, you know, how does, how does this work? And um, maybe got lost a little bit in the shuffle at South Carolina. Uh, Oregon really could use a bat like his has the potential to be. So if he can figure it out uh, there in Eugene, I mean, that would be, that'd be huge for the Ducks. Yeah, I think um, Brendan Malone was going to be the name that I dug in on because I think he has had some bad luck. He had an injury in 2020 and like everyone's season after, you know, a handful of games in 2020, I, I understand that, but he was, he was hurt in 2020. And then if you last year, you know, he split time at third base with Jeff Heinrich, although had he really taken the bull by the horns, he would have been the everyday third baseman at South Carolina. The platoon was because he wasn't hitting like they had hoped. The average is pretty low. He didn't hit with as much power as I think they'd hoped, but I don't know if you're looking for reason for optimism there, I would hang on to the fact he was still drawing a good number of walks. So it feels like he was still seeing the ball. Okay. He was still managing to be an effective offensive player here and there. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, Mark Wazikowski got to Oregon and it really seemed like, suddenly their position players got a lot better. You know, Kenyon Yovan had breakouts, Gabe Matthews had a breakout, Aaron Zavala became what he came. And, and some of those guys were there longer before Waz got there than others, but he really does seem to kind of get the best out of guys that have been a little bit of, uh, let's say in, in a dehumanizing way. And I don't mean this that way, but they were depressed assets, if you will. Like he seems to really kind of be able to get the most out of those guys. And, and maybe Brennan Malone is, is an example of that once he gets to Oregon. Yeah, and it's uh, Waz has done that kind of throughout his career, kind of instant impacts. So if if Malone can uh, can be that again, it, it would it would be big for Oregon, which is trying to replace Zavala, who was um, I guess he was a second round pick, and Gabe Matthews, who was arguably their most productive player, and Kenyon Yovan, who was perhaps their biggest power threat. So they got some offensive holes that they got to fill and. And Malone has the potential to uh, to do so. So when you look at, I'm kind of fascinated by the teams that went all in on the transfer portal. And I think they fall into a couple of different buckets. I mean, the first one is that, you know, LSU and A&M really went all in. But I'm inclined to believe those are one-offs. A&M clearly needed a little bit of a roster reset after finishing last in the West last year. And then a new coach with Jim Schlossnagel, that obviously made it easy to, I don't want to say easy, but that made it an obvious place for that type of roster turnover to happen. LSU, similar situation. The roster was in better shape. However, new coach with Jay Johnson, clearly he wanted to bring over a few of his guys from Arizona. So I think there was an opportunity there where there was going to be a lot of transfer portal movement. I would not expect those two programs to continue to use the transfer portal in the same way. Do they pick and choose like Mississippi State does, for example, moving forward? Sure, I can see that. Yes, I think AM is going to continue to play. Um, LSU will probably be very selective going forward. Uh, but yeah, the, you're not going to see AM took what, like half a dozen players? That's not happening every year there. Yeah, I, I don't, I wish I had the, the list of the, the classes up, but I think, you know, AM, I think it might have been closer to 10, to be honest. Um, in total, maybe it was eight. Maybe it's right in between. Maybe it's eight. But regardless, yes, huge class. LSU, pretty sizable class. Outside of that, though, so I think the other bucket is I think there are a group of programs that maybe you see continue to use the transfer portal 
as just an ongoing part of their recruiting strategy. So I'm talking about Kentucky took a big class and Kentucky took a big class last year, even when a lot of classes, schools weren't doing that yet. Missouri took a pretty big class. Pittsburgh took a big class. K-State took a big class. And there are some examples in there. I think Mizzou's interesting because they finished actually in last place in the, not just in their division. They were, they had, they, they were behind A&M and the SEC standings and they just had a large roster turnover. So I don't know whether this is Mizzou strategy or if this is specific, let's dig out of a hole quickly. It could very well could be. And that's, that's part of what I say too, is I think there could be some other one-off explanations here. Cause I think you could also make the argument with Pitt of Mike Bell and his staff saying, look, we, we have some momentum now, like last season did not end like we wanted it to end, but we came you know, this close to making a regional for the first time in forever. Like, let's see if we can't kind of keep pushing here. So I can also see the argument for that because it is a pretty good class. I have it ranked in the top 25 and that's not just because of the size of it. They've got some quality players coming in. So there is, there is that, but you look at this group in general though, with, I think the commonality with Kentucky, Missouri, Pitt and K-State, I think the argument I would make for maybe this is something that we see more from them moving forward is that, I mean, those are four schools that I don't think, I mean, to me are obvious that they just have recruiting disadvantages relative to a lot of the rest of their conference. And that a lot of those disadvantages are not going away. Some are unique, um, you know, Missouri's facility relative to the rest of the SEC, for example. However, you're never going to change the weather. You're never going to change whether or not your state produces a lot of division one players. You're never going to change the history of your baseball program. You can't do that. And those programs are all working from a disadvantage. And I have to wonder if this is a concerted effort in the case with some of these programs of saying, look, we have to face reality on reality's terms. Let's see if we can't get some value in the transfer portal by either bringing up productive mid-major players who want to play in a major conference. Or I think what's interesting is in the case of K-State, they do have some of those guys from the lower levels, but their class is pretty heavy on those guys who were big names in recruiting that went somewhere for one or two years and are now leaving. And so I have to wonder if they're maybe kind of secondhand recruiting those guys a little bit. I mean, Dom Johnson from Oklahoma State is going there. He's a guy, it's kind of a, a great example of this. Their class is heavier on those types of guys than most of them. So there's a few different iterations of this, but I do have to wonder if these are teams that are looking at the reality of the recruiting environment they're in and saying, this might actually be the best way forward for us because we're just not the type of program that's going to be pumping out top 15 classes year after year. You didn't mention the pokes in this, and I think well, Oklahoma I was, I was State getting to them okay. <laughs> because well, they do think, sit between the two. I think I, I think Oklahoma State and Kentucky are kind of more similar here. Those are places that have traditionally done a lot of junior college in in the recruiting, and do you need to go do junior college stuff uh, with the portal as much, or, or you know, and, and schools that, that recruit junior colleges are going to continue to do so. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that, that I'm not suggesting that's going away entirely, but I am saying that maybe you need to take a couple less of them if you can go into the portal and, you know, take a, a, a fourth year player, a third year player or, or something like that. And, you know, so I, I think some of those schools that you're talking about have just already been kind of less in the high school recruiting game and more in the 
experienced player via the junior college route, well, now you can take them through the portal. And so I, I think that is a, I think that's a lasting strategy on some of these teams, but I think it's just kind of a, a little bit of a, a tweak to what was already an existing strategy uh, for, for several of them. That's a good call. You know, I say I was going to bring up Oklahoma State because, you know, we talked about the teams for which this is a one-off, likely a one-off, LSU, AM. We talked about the teams that, hey, this could actually be a sign of like a, a, a strategy play they're making based on the reality of, of recruiting otherwise. And Oklahoma State, I think Kentucky was good to put in there because they've also, Kentucky has better recruiting classes more often than K-State, Pitt, Mizzou. But Oklahoma State was really the one that stuck out a little bit to me because they took on a big class and it is full of guys who are ready to do stuff right now. And so you make a good point with the JUCO thing. I think that's right. The other thing I was thinking is that is this is this a situation where they think they were pretty close last year and they just need to supplement to kind of get something over the over the finish line? Um, because you, you do see that sometimes as well. But I, I think the answer is maybe a combination, a little bit of this, a little bit of that when it comes to Oklahoma State. But they were the interesting one because that is a place that typically recruits pretty well. And they have some high profile guys coming to campus this year that were not expected necessarily to get there. So they can recruit. And yet they still did a, a big transfer class. That that one's kind of interesting, but I think you I think you probably nailed it there with the, with the JUCO thing. And, and maybe there's a little bit of the idea that hey, we were pretty close last year. Let's see if we can't just level up from where we were. I mean, I think they played heavily a year ago too. Um, I, I think they were one of the teams that were in it a little more. So yeah, I, I, I think they definitely fit the well. We already have more in the business of taking a few junior college players a year maybe it will look to the junior college ranks, but we'll also be smart about looking at the portal. So my, my last thing I wanted to, to do here, unless you've, you've got something else on that topic, I was going to play the game of giving listeners a few names to keep in mind of guys who are leaving major conference programs to go to smaller programs that could be in for, you know, monster seasons um, because those are, those are kind of always fun because it's, you know, a guy who's maybe put in some time, as a backup sitting behind other players at big time programs that finally get a chance to uh, finally get a chance to shine. So I've got that. uh, I've got that list ready. I got one more player and we talked about this a little bit offline uh, and that's Maxwell Romero jr. Who goes from Vanderbilt to Miami and he's coming off of a pretty good Cape, but he was also difficult to play. So that's a guy that didn't play much for Vanderbilt. He was their backup uh, this last year. And, you know, Vanderbilt needs a starting catcher because C.J. Rodriguez went to pro ball. uh, But Romero still leaves Vanderbilt and goes goes to his hometown uh, or back to South Florida. I don't specifically have his hometown in front of me, but he's headed to Miami. And it's just really interesting when you see a player of that caliber move, first of all, because he was well regarded out of high school. And, and then when you see a player leaving Vanderbilt for another premium program like Miami, I don't know how it's going to go. Like he, he had a good cape, like I said, but we just haven't seen him in a full-time role that we'll see this year. So I just kind of wanted to throw that one out there as a, uh, that's, that's a very intriguing player uh, to, to watch this, this spring. And um, I don't know if it's 
going to be informative to any broader trends going forward in the portal, but uh, maybe it will be. I don't know. But that's uh, that, that's one that I'm watching. Yeah, it's good to bring him up. I actually had him on my list and I failed to, to mention him, so I'm glad you did. Um, you know, I, I, I think I forgot that our offline conversation was offline and not on the <laughs> podcast, frankly, if I'm being honest. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting one. Um, and I think it's important to remember, too, that you mentioned, hey, regular college students transfer, too. And I think it's important to remember that most of these transfers happen primarily based on baseball logic. However, there are other factors, right? Like maybe Van, he would have been Vanderbilt starting catcher next year, but maybe he was ready to go home. You know, maybe he just felt well, like and also better, baseball you know? logic can sometimes like it doesn't even necessarily equate to like, well, like this is this is what's going to get me better ready for the next level or whatever. I, I remember Boomer White leaving TCU for AM after TCU had just beat AM to go to the World Series, but he just really wanted to play for AM. Like that had been kind of a childhood dream. And uh, so he went out and he did it and was SEC player of the year two years later. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. He was uh, one of the more high-profile transfers in college baseball during this roughly 15-year period where they, you know, players had to had to sit out a year. So, he, you know, he other than the grad transfer, obviously. So, um, there were just not not many players like him in terms of just instant impact guys. But um, yeah, it, Maxwell Romero Jr. from from Miramar, Florida, which is in Broward County. Shout out to the nine four five. So going back uh, going back home in that case. So. All right, let's talk about some potential stat monsters going down from uh, down a level here. I think the number one on this list, like number one with a bullet on this list, is Nate Rombach going from Texas Tech to Dallas Baptist. This man is going to hit like 25 home runs at Dallas Baptist next year. Like he played 59 games at Texas Tech, which is basically a full season if you factor in like a few postseason games, which Tech always is involved in at least a few. Um, He had 15 home runs in those 59 games. So he was he was hitting home runs at Texas Tech. There were other concerns, you know, positionally it's like, is he a catcher? Is he a first baseman? He's probably more like a DH, but that's a DBU team that uh, hit 101 home runs last year. He's going to be facing Missouri Valley pitching, which is good on the high end and less good on the low end. Um, I think that's a guy who's, who's going to be in for a big season. Um, I think he's, he's has to be number one on this list in terms of be ready for a monster season from that guy. I mean, I, he could be a, like an NBC player of the year type of guy, I think. So um, he comes to mind. A couple of Mississippi State guys, Josh Hatcher going to Kennesaw State. I think, uh, you know, he's, he's the type of guy that I think there were a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings with Mississippi State fans with him. Um, you know, he's, he's been kind of a super sub guy. He's never necessarily been in a major role. His one year as a full-time starter was 2020, and that season got canceled. So I think there's always going to be good feelings between the, the fans – uh, programs fans and him uh, but going to Kennesaw State back to his home state of Georgia to finish off I think he's in for a good year Landon Jordan to South Alabama is the other guy he's actually maybe more of a defensive asset for South Alabama than he is offensive although I think he'll hit plenty at South Alabama and that's a big deal for a South Alabama lineup that outside of Ethan Wilson had its struggles last year another one to watch is Trey Leonard at Troy like kind of quietly last year Trey Leonard had a nice year Louisville second half of the year, maybe not even that, like last month of the year, really kind of disappeared on us a little bit um, because they struggled so much, but pretty quietly, he had a really nice year offensively. He can absolutely fly. I could see this being a type of situation where, you know, he ends up hitting for a really high average and ends up stealing just an absurd amount of bases uh, because he's got nothing but the green light at Troy. So that's another one to watch as a guy who could find success in a, in a new place. And those are, that's the flip side of the, of the transfer portal. This is the part where these mid-major programs look at 
the major programs and say, hey, you know, we might lose a guy or two, but our hope is that also we catch some of the talent trickling down the other way. And, and those are some guys to watch in that regard. Yeah, that, that is an important thing to remember when we think about the portal. Like it can't just all be players moving up. <laughs> some players have to move down. Obviously, the top end programs also lose players to the draft and whatever, but uh, the, the, the churn does come both ways. So uh, intriguing players there. And I would uh, throw out TJ Reeves as well, going to uh, Jacksonville State from Alabama. Um, he's, uh, he's had some good moments for the Tides. So uh, that could be a nice pickup for, uh, for Jack's, uh, Jack State. That is a great call, too. That one's actually one I, I should have found, but I missed because he – I mean, the one thing he he did at Alabama when he was playing was hit for power, and he's going to be facing OVC pitching, which, you know, with the OVC baseball in the OVC. Are, are they in the OVC or they in oh, the Oh, you know what? They're in the A-Sun. That's, uh, we, yeah, we're just going to have to do that episode where we talk about conversation realignment <laughs> on a small scale. Because, like, I just need it as, like, a, as a, like a, some sort of memory tool. But he just missed OVC pitching. We'll put it that way. So, yeah. But, but the point stands. I mean, he's a guy who has shown potential – has never quite put it together at Alabama. And I think now it's going to have an opportunity to, to do big things there. But um, so that, yeah, that's the um, top 100 transfers. It was a, you know, it was fun to put together. I think it was a good reminder of where some guys are going and, and coming from, but I, I think, you know, to put a bow on it, I just think this is going to be a fascinating group to watch because in a lot of ways they're, they're trailblazers um, in terms of being the first group since I think it was 2005 to be able to go four year school to four year school, minus grad transfers, of course, without having to sit out a year. Um, so I think that's interesting, but I think more so, I think the portal that is going to open up at the beginning of the start of next season um, will be an interesting one to watch because I think that's where we start to really see what this is going to look like from, from year to year, because this year, I think there are a lot of, like we talked about, a lot of different forces pulling in different directions that make it to where the, the data on what we can expect is, is a little bit noisy. Absolutely. So that was a, that was a nice dive into it. You can check out the uh, full 100 over at baseballamerica.com. And next week, Joe will have the top 25 classes uh, that we alluded to. Plenty of other stuff to read over at baseballamerica.com while you're there. Uh, I'm now going conference by conference, team by team through, uh, through recruiting. We've got the ACC online already. Big 12 will, uh, will be following in somewhat short order and like joe said our five question series in the fall is beginning this week um charlotte is uh is is the first team up uh and you can find that again over at baseballamerica.com you can follow us on twitter i'm at ted cahill joe is at joe healy ba and while you're at it make sure you are subscribed to the baseball america podcast so you don't miss an episode you can find that over on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us and hit that subscribe button. Uh, we would greatly appreciate it. We'll be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. Uh, we'll have an interview guest, I am sure, from somewhere around college baseball to uh, to dive into uh, all, things, all things fall ball and 2022 and all, all that great stuff that we usually talk about here. Uh, so we'll, we'll have that next week. So we'll see you then want to thank rap Soto for presenting this and every edition of the baseball America college podcast for Joe. I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.